We're looking today at God's royal rule in salvation. You'll notice in your bulletin outline, first thing is that mankind is hopelessly dead towards God. Hopelessly dead towards God. Now there's an incredulity factor that comes along in making a statement like that. Because people will say, well, I feel very much alive. How can you talk about me being dead? Have you ever contemplated the tremendous power and spiritual energy required to bring sinners out of spiritual deadness to life, out of blindness to sight? A virtual resurrection must occur. The first Adam drove a stake in our hearts and the entire human race died spiritually. The last Adam, Jesus, must not only pull the stake out, he must heal the decayed tissue, he must breathe new life into the dead corpse. This is not resuscitation with a CPR or a defibrillator on someone who has momentarily stopped breathing. No, no. This is walking among the tombstones and grave sites of those entombed in Metamore and Thornville cemeteries and saying by command, live, live. With the result that the graves fold open and the caskets yield living beings. As David contemplated this truth, he wrote in verse 20 of our text, Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Wow, what a tremendous statement. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. If you've ever walked through a cemetery and passed by the crypt of a wealthy family, it would be like a small stone building into which were placed the vaults of various deceased family members. I think more than likely there would be a wrought iron gate and on the gate a secure lock. And the lock is not to keep the dead in, but to keep the vandals out. The dead are contained within without a lock. Their absence of life is the lock. They're going nowhere under their own power. This is the picture the Bible paints when Paul talks about being dead in trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Or again, when speaking of the pleasure-seeking woman as being dead while she lives. 1 Timothy 5 verse 16. Or verse 6, excuse me. Therefore you have Paul praying. Here's what he says. I pray that the eyes, listen how he says this. I pray that the eyes of your heart, hmm, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and in his and his incomparably great power for us 
who believe. That power, I'm still reading, is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is a tremendous statement. Raised him from the dead and seated him at his at the right hand of the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but in the, in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to, the, to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's Ephesians 1, 18 through 23. A tremendous text. He's saying it was an incomparably great power for us who believe. The power was like resurrection power over Christ. Wow. That gives kind of a new meaning in our thoughts to being dead in trespasses and sin. Everyone has the concept that when a person dies physically, it's virtually impossible to restore them to life short of a divine miracle. There are accounts in the Bible of the dead being resurrected to life, and in every incident, every incident it was demonstrated that such an event occurred by nothing less than divine intervention. Classic example is the one we're studying on Sunday nights. At the tomb of Lazarus, friend of Jesus, brother of Mary, and Martha. He became ill while Jesus was out of the country. By the time Jesus returned, the funeral had already taken place, and Lazarus had been entombed for four days. Four days. So when Jesus commanded the mourners to remove the stone that gated the sepulcher, Martha, the sister, protested, saying, But Lord... By this time, there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. John 11, verse 39. That was Martha's way of saying, you know, it's too late. It is simply too late, Lord. Decomposition has already begun. The blood has coagulated. The flesh is decaying. Nothing can be done. And may I say that Martha was absolutely right, humanly speaking. Nothing by men, nothing by men could be done. Even with our most knowledgeable paramedics of today who possess the latest high-tech equipment and training, nothing could be done. Might as well let the dead man rest in peace. But Jesus refused to leave it there. Instead, he challenged Martha, saying, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? John 11, verse 40. That is, you would see a demonstration of God's glory. He had told her earlier, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Verse 25, he was saying to her, God can do the impossible. 
Jesus is God, so Jesus can do the impossible. Even for those who are dead. And in our case, as we're talking about the spiritually dead. Now, what do we mean by spiritual death? We've had to define our terms. When we come to spiritual death the, and the need of spiritual resurrection to occur, an incredulity sets in on us. We can agree wholeheartedly with Martha when she expresses the utter hopelessness of raising her dead brother from the tomb. Because we have stood by the grave sites of our deceased loved ones and have been overwhelmed with the reality, may I say, with the finality of death. We are convinced that all the prayers in the world will not result in them coming out of the grave. We understand this about death in general. But what about spiritual death? Firstly, we're not sure of the definition. And secondly, as used with regard to the soul, we cannot have the same incapacity and finality as it does when we say so-and-so died and their funeral is this Tuesday. So what's the definition? What do we mean when we say a person is spiritually dead? Paul answers in Ephesians, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1. That is, we were entombed in a state of sin and transgression from which there is no escape. He goes on, verse 2. God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace that you have been saved. Made alive, but we were dead before. So you have that in the text. In Colossians 2, he says it this way. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. So being dead spiritually has something to do with ongoing sin for which there has been no forgiveness. Again, he says the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. 1 Timothy 5 verse 6. So what is he saying? Well, he's saying she has mobility. She's got agility physically. But she's still dead. Now here's, here's where we're getting into defining terms and it's a little different than what we normally would think. Jesus said to John, to the angel of the church of Sardis, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Revelation 3, verse 1. And he's directing that statement to the spiritually dead people in the church, where spiritual life abounds in God's true people. So, to be spiritually dead means to be dead towards God and godliness and alive towards sin 
and breaking the holy law of God by nature. This is our preference. This is our choice if we are spiritually dead. Let me give you now six characteristics of spiritual deadness. One or more of these are going to apply to the spiritually dead. Number one, religious but not transformed spiritually. Religious but not transformed spiritually or in spirit. The Pharisees are the biblical example of this. They were rabbis who taught theology in the Jewish synagogues and schools. They actively sought converts to Judaism and would travel out of the country to do so. So they had a missionary spirit. They prayed openly and often in the marketplace. They wore scripture verses and little leather pouches, which they tied to their foreheads, called phylacteries. They tithe their material possessions right down to the herbs in their garden and donated the proceeds to the temple. They studied the Bible and they could quote Moses' writings in particular. Yet for all of this religious fervor, Jesus said to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside but on the inside are full of, get it now, are full of dead men's bones hmm. and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Matthew 23, verse 27 and 28. So like the church of Sardis, they had a reputation for being alive spiritually when they were really dead. That's a good thing to know about being spiritually dead. That you can look like you're alive and not be alive spiritually. Well, what's good about that? Well, anytime you can know yourself and learn of yourself, that's good. Would to God that people would lurk in, look into the word of God and see themselves in this understanding. Secondly, Second trait, the spiritually dead nitpick on minor spiritual issues but miss the greater good. Again, Jesus, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, and then he names some, mint, dill, cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you will strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Matthew 23, 23. So what he's describing here is that the spiritually dead major in the minors. Because they're trying to show how fastidious they are in religious duty. How detailed they are. When we tithe and put our tithe in the offering box, well, we tithe even the mint and the other herbs that are in our garden. So we sell those things, translate them into 
cash, put the cash in the temple chest. See how good we are? See how righteous we are? Majoring in the minors. Thirdly, people who are spiritually dead know the law of God, but not the God of the law. And how do we know that? They use the law like a club to critique others, but they do not obey it themselves. Paul writing in the Romans says, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of the infants, because you have the law and the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? All of this, Romans 2, verses 17 through 23. And what it is describing here is book learning of theological principles, but not putting the things known to practice. And when that happens, that's a sign of spiritual death. Again, Jesus put it this way, the teachers of the law... And the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. And so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. That is their teaching. But don't do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. Matthew 23, verse 2 and 3. Spiritually dead. May very well know, know the Bible pretty well. They can study the principles. They can study theology. But if they're not living up to those things, if they teach others but they don't listen to their own message, it's a sign of death. The fourth trait of spiritual deadness is a pursuit of the world and the pleasures of the flesh and disdain for righteousness. Those who live according to the sinful nature, writes Paul, have their minds set on that nature and what it desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death. There he got it. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot Please, God. Romans 8, 5 through 8. So what he is saying is that people dead towards God would never think of doing what Moses did. What did Moses do? Well, he had become a prince in Egypt, you remember, through the adoption of Pharaoh's daughter. But the writer of Hebrews says, By faith, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. 
He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Hebrews 11, 24 through 27. So a person that is spiritually dead does not renounce the world and its fleshly allurements, but actually pursues those things. Number five, those dead towards God do not understand spiritual truths, but ridicule those things as being foolish and unimportant. Paul writes it this way, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14. Or again. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved. It's the power of God. For it is written. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jew and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. The weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 and following. What he is saying here is that when the word of God is preached, the people that are spiritually blind don't get it. They don't get it. You have some relatives like that. You try to witness to them. It's just foolishness to them. They stumble over it. They can't see it. Can't appreciate it. Sign of spiritual blindness. Number six. Those that are spiritually blind are able to see. They are able to see the sins of others. But they're blind to their own sin. And they're unable to promote the teachings of God over their traditions of men. Again, Jesus says, what goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. But what comes out of his mouth, that's what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended by this? In other words, when they heard this. He replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled out by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. And if a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into the pit. And Peter said, explain the parable to us. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth said Jesus goes into the stomach and then out of the body. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean, for it's out of the heart that comes evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality, theft, false testimony and slander. These are what make a man unclean, but eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. Matthew 15, verse 11 and following. 
So the spiritually blind opt for their own viewpoints or traditions, we could say it that way, and they refuse to change. Refuse to change. So that brings us to how are people going to be saved if they're spiritually blind like this? If they have one or all of these six points? Well, there is a great need for God's resurrection power. People are dead without feeling it. This is something that um, Satan, I think, uses to convince people that they're alive in Christ. I hope I've convinced you from the Bible that the scriptures do describe and define such a thing as being spiritually dead. That is, dead towards God. And as we've been learning with regard to guilt and guilt feelings, guilt is firstly objective, having to do with real sin, a real breach of God's law. And feelings of guilt are subjective and may relate to real or imaginary sin. Well, the same goes for the reality of being dead towards God. Before the Spirit's regeneration work, His resurrection of our spirit, deadness is a reality whether you feel it to be so or not. Here's where objective truth stumps feelings. We're such a feely-touchy society that it's easy for us to dismiss anything that is not supported by our emotions. Consider a football coach at halftime. He's, he's talking to his team, which is behind, 21-3. to three. But instead of dealing with the reality that the offensive line of the opposing team are all these six-foot-four guys weighing 300 pounds, they're just creaming his smaller guys, he opts to give them a little pep talk. Well, you might be small, but you're mighty. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Just remember that. The race isn't to the swift and the strong, but to the slow and steady. What do you say, man? We are invincible. Can you feel it? And on and on it goes. There's some under the breath mumbling or complete silence by the team. Why? Because feeling you will win is not the same as knowing those plays and strategies which will assume victory. So folks, feeling that you are alive and can respond aright to God and the gospel is like this coach giving his pep talk. It has no reality and objective truth. Unless the coach admits that his men need to rethink their position and make radical changes, his team is going to get creamed when they come out from halftime. The spiritually dead are more desperate than that, however. They cannot even change strategies. Worse, they don't see the need to change. The will isn't there. The want to isn't there. It's headed in a different direction. There's no fuel in the tank to go the distance. The dead just decay in the grave. They cannot resuscitate themselves. 
They will go the way of all sinners unless and until God intervenes. They're dead even though they don't feel it. And that's the great problem that we have in preaching the gospel. We talk to people about being dead in trespasses and sin. They feel very much alive. And they don't see how they're dead in trespasses and sin. They will make statements like, well, I don't hate God. But their actions say, yeah, you hate God. Well, I try to do the best I can, but the scripture says that they do not. That if they break one law, they're guilty of all. So we have to watch how emotions are used to discount what the scripture declares to be the truth. Secondly, then, we're made alive in Christ, if, those are, if we're saved, we're made alive without effecting it. That is, we don't make ourselves alive. The spiritually dead do not need a pep talk. They do not need a coach to tell them how to change and what to do. They need, get it now, resurrection. They need life. What does our text say? Psalm 68, verse 19 and 20. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. Verse 19 and 20. Jesus put it this way, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. John 5 verse 21. Spiritual life, which results in eternal life, is the exclusive work of the Sovereign Lord. Again, Jesus, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand and I and the Father are one. John 10, 27 through 30. Or again, Jesus says, For you granted him authority over all people, speaking of himself, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 17, verse 2 and 3. The apostles experienced this great example in their ministry. At the preaching of the gospel by Paul and Barnabas, there was a mixed reaction. It goes like this. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourself Worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. 
I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. Acts 13, 45 through 49. We need to understand that at Pisidian Antioch, Paul taught Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue concerning Jesus Christ. And he taught them on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ, the main tenets of the faith. Both groups heard the same preachers, Paul and Barnabas. Both heard the same identical message. Both were present at the same meeting and heard the message together, so they were in the same environment. Both heard copious references to the Old Testament scriptures showing God's prediction of Jesus' work and ministry. Both had the same opportunity to follow Paul and Barnabas after adjournment to ask their questions. Both were citizens of Antioch and could have invited their friends to hear the next lecture next Sabbath day. So what we have here is same, same, same with everything being the same, humanly speaking. So here's the question. Why the mixed reaction? Why did the Jewish constituency of the group talk abusively against, that's what the scripture says, abusively against what Paul and Barnabas had preached? Verse 46 why did they reject it while the Gentiles, the Greeks that were present there, were glad about the message and honored the word of the Lord? This is phenomenal when you think about it. In a group consisting of same, 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 all of a sudden we have different. Different. The Jews who had the advantage of possessing and knowing the scriptures speak abusively against the gospel and they reject it. While the Greeks, with whom the scriptures were not as familiar, gladly received the gospel and honored the word. Hmm. What or who made the difference? Luke, writing of the Gentiles in the group, says, All who were appointed for eternal life believed. What's he saying? Eternal life is God's gift. And it's God's gift by appointment. And so all the means necessary to receive it are God's gift as well, repentance and faith to believe. David knew this and he taught this. When he wrote in our psalm this morning, Our God is a God who saves, From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. In Romans 9, Paul actually quotes God. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's 
mercy. Romans 9, verse 15 and 16. So, if you are alive spiritually this morning, you are so without effecting it. That is, you didn't do it. Spiritual life is a work of mercy from the Sovereign Lord. Now, if you're with me to this point, even as an unbeliever, you can see that in the final analysis, eternal life does not depend on you, but upon the will of the Sovereign Lord in whom alone is the escape from death. While there's nothing you can do to influence God's decision on life eternal, you can beg for mercy. If your pride will let you do it. Ah, now here comes the rub. If your pride will let you do it. That's the issue, isn't it? It's the difference between the jealous Jews who spoke abusively against the gospel that Paul preached and the humble Gentiles who were just thrilled that Paul had come to their town with such good news. They had never heard this before. Sinners, especially religious sinners, do not want to hear that all of their fastidious obedience to the moral principles of the law of, the law of God count for nothing. They don't want to hear that. They disdain mercy. They hate grace because it places everyone on the same plane. The prostitute is right there with the theologian. The ignorant and the unlearned, the unschooled is right there with the college graduate. The gospel gives no recognition to position or privilege. It points always to Christ, to Christ, to Christ, and the cross. Brethren, Jesus died for sinners who by that sin were dead towards God. He is sovereign through it all, and that's our great hope. Jesus said it this way, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Not your sacrifices, not your good works. I desire mercy. For I have not come to call the righteous. You don't have to clean up your life. I have come to call sinners. Matthew 9, verse 12 and 13. Here Jesus is disclosing the wish of his heart, the royal rule, the desire of his heart, is not to withhold mercy, but to extend it to all who call out, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, as the sinner did in Luke 18, verse 13. May God hear and answer your prayer this morning, if it's that prayer. Just as people are dead spiritually but don't feel it, so we who are alive spiritually have not effected it. We didn't bring it about on our own. In all cases, God is the one doing his work.
if you will rest in what God has done through Christ, he'll come into your life and change it for the better. He will make you alive, truly alive in Christ. And you will feel that. And you will respond to that. And I pray that that's the case. That's the royal rule of salvation. All of grace, nothing but grace. And even if you don't feel it, it's affected in Christ. Not a partnership, as we said last week. Father, we thank you for your word and pray that you will seal it to our hearts. If anyone's going to get the glory in salvation, may it be you and only you and your beloved son. It's God and God alone that can bring life to the dead. And for any here that's sitting here today and they, they feel very much alive, but they're dead towards God. May you work in their lives to see this today and then grant them the faith and repentance to believe only in Jesus and what he's done on his cross. Paying for their sin, if they will have him, if they will swallow their pride and apprehend Christ by faith. It's a big move. It's a tremendous move. Because we're so full of self. We're so full of pride. We're so full of our own abilities. We really think we can save ourselves. We really think that we can come to God on our own terms. Please forgive us for that kind of arrogance. It just shows how dead we are to our real predicament without God in our lives. Be with our radio audience, our internet audience. We ask that you will speak through the gospel. Grant them the faith that's found only in the scripture. And if they think they're alive but they're not, may they also be honest enough to see that. We know that the God of this age, who is Satan, is doing his work even now to blind people from seeing the glory that's found in Christ alone. They think they're okay without Christ. They think they're okay without crying out for life to come to them from God Almighty. Remove the scales, the blinders, Lord. Let them see Jesus. Let them love him more than they love self. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. From Trinity, the red hymnal, number 546. Five hundred forty-six in the red hymnal.